Good to have you here this morning. So this morning we're going to talk about the Ethiopian eunuch in, uh, in uh, chapter 8 of Acts. We move on to Acts, and, uh, and it's a dramatic story. And one of the things I want to talk about is uh, uh, a guy named Simeon Zoll, who, who gave a talk out in New York, and someone sent a link to me. Uh, if any of you are interested, uh, afterwards you can uh, chase me down, and I can... Give me an email and I'll send the link to you. But it was an intriguing piece in that he was talking about how to drill through bricks and he was talking about a theory or theology of change and talking to pastors back in New York. And uh, it caught my attention because that's, in a sense, what we're working with. Have you ever noticed how much things have been changing in our culture and our world uh, in your lifetime? however long your lifetime is. Change is the one thing that never changes. Change is continuous. Some change feels like it's for good. Some change maybe not so good. So those are the wrestling matches we, we have before us. And the one who actually is the source of the deepest and most profound change uh, changes would be the living God. He changed nothing into something and then has carried us forward till today. So as we enter into this question, what is your theory of change as you're working with a group of people, as a manager, as a, a father, a mother, a, a brother, a son, a critic, a friend, whatever we happen to be, we're working on change in others or maybe even in ourselves. So we want to explore that a little bit this morning and use our Ethiopian eunuch friend as our touchstone figure for God changing someone in a profound way. Now, Simeon Zoll, let me get back to him. His thesis was that there, his argument was, and by the way, talking about drilling bricks, he's a professor of theology at Cambridge University, an American who's gotten this position at Cambridge, and he's talking about drilling in the wall there in his house in Cambridge, and they make walls out of brick and concrete there. So he was kind of trying to figure out how to manage his house, his new house there. And as he was talking about that, he talked about the need to know how to make change. So he talks about the theory of change. He says there's three major theories of change. There may be more, but he said there's information change. We change by getting new information, collect information, and somehow it's like seeds that get planted and then produce change in us once we have the information. A lot of times we'll offer that to our children. Here's the information you need, and that will no doubt change you. Sometimes that doesn't work. <laughs> it's called advice. And advice doesn't always work. Uh, another option would be to determine to change. I am going to lose three pounds every week for the next five weeks so that come July, when I make that vacation trip, I will be svelte. Well, I'm not there, and that's nothing that's ever worked for me, that determination-based change, will-based change. Um, a lot of times that's really not so successful as we wish it was. Another and probably more profound model, and that's what he focused on in his talk, was heart-based change. He said we are really people of heart, and that when our hearts change, our behaviors change. And so the key is it's from the inside out that we change, and the tr trick is to have that transformation starting on the inside. So that's a little bit of what we'll see, I think, in the Ethiopian eunuch as we explore him in the book of Acts today. Well, let me just read. We'll throw it on the screen for you, too, from the ASV of um, the passage that we'll be looking at. 
chapter uh, 8, and we'll pick it up here in verse uh, 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go uh, toward the south to the road that uh, goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. So the ministry of the treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, uh, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied to him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth." And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were uh, going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord teleported, I've just learned that term here just now, carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus. That would be um, the current portion of um, uh, uh, Gaza, under uh, south of Tel Aviv, ways, uh, and he passed through and preached the gospel all in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Later on, we find that Philip, this is Philip the evangelist, not Philip the the apostle, and we'll find him then with four daughters later on in the book of Acts. So he's one of the seven. Um, uh, people selected to represent the Hellenists. He's got a name, named after Philip of Macedon, the great ruler, king, whose son, Alexander the Great, conquered the world. So he would be what we would call a Hellenist, someone who lived as a Jew under the cultural direction of Latin and Greek people. And there was a bit of a divide we saw earlier about the need for someone to take care of the Hellenists, the widows who are the Hellenists, that is the non-Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews. And there was a little bit of a cultural divide there because of the language and lifestyle issues that were involved there. So Philip is one of the leaders, the seven that were selected, along with Stephen, who had just been uh, put to death. Uh, so. He has this very significant role, and we realize it's much more than just serving tables. This is a man that's ready to march out and do what God tells him to do in a very dramatic fashion. So he's going to be a figure for this 
process of change. But let's focus on our Ethiopian friend, the Ethiopian eunuch. What do we find out about him? Well, he is the treasure for the whole country of Ethiopia. Well, that's pretty dramatic, uh, which means to say he's an African, no doubt a black African and a man of great substance. And what on earth is he doing in Jerusalem? Well, he came, we find, to seek about God, hear more about God. He wanted to find out about the God of Judaism. And it's interesting, I just happened in my own Bible reading this morning to come to the passage in 1 Kings that I said, well, I need to just tack this into my sermon this morning. It's where Solomon is giving his prayer of dedication for the temple. And in his prayer of dedication, he makes this, this uh, comment here. I'm look, looking at 1 Kings chapter 8. He says, likewise, which verse is that? 41. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, this is a prayer to God, comes from a far country for, for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do the people of Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built for you is called by your name. God has come to earth. He means to be known. He means to be in relationship. And he makes himself available to the world at large. And so as we think of the transition that starts in chapter 1, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Make sure that you're moving progressively from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to all the earth. And what we've seen is they were starting in Jerusalem. They were speaking at the temple. Uh, they were suppressed. They were not wanted. They continued to do ministry. That led to... Uh, Stephen being confronted, Stephen being put to death, and now there's the persecution and the church is starting to scatter. And we found uh, last week the ministry in Samaria. So as you see the progression that's taking place. It's not all because they're saying, well, what's next? Let's go out and do it uh, on our terms. We find that God is working on his terms to bring this about. And now we're going to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's quite a... How far is it from Addis Ababa to Jerusalem? If you were to rent a car, how many miles would it be? And there are roads that will get you there. Over 2,100 miles. This guy is popping that distance on a chariot. When's the, when's the next truck stop? <laughs> you know? So can you imagine that? And the roads were not smooth and paved in those days. It would have been a tough, tough journey of weeks. And he would have had someone to run the chariot, probably a couple of horses, and maybe another servant or two along with him. Um, and all of this just to get to know God. Coming to Jerusalem because he's heard about the God of the Israelites. And he said, this sounds to me like the true and the living God. I must meet him. I must find out. He was what we would call a God seeker. And that's a formal title for many people that came. So that as we think about the early church, we have those who are uh, seeking God. He's a spiritually hungry man. He has to have been a very able man. You don't get to be the treasurer of an entire country 
unless you are both honest and able. So let's just say this is who he is. This man has some, something going for him. And yet he's still needy. He's still hungry. He's still ready to grow. And uh, we also find out that the queen trusts him. You don't get to be in charge of the bank vault of an entire country unless the people know and trust you. And the Queen Candace has clearly made him this significant figure in the country. We also find that he is, um, um, well, how do we say this? He's a eunuch. So he has no family future. You know, it's a funny thing. A lot of times, uh, some of you may know, many of you may know that I'm an old bachelor. I've never married. So I have no kids. And you have no idea how that shapes things. When people have kids, <clears throat> everything tends to revolve around the next generation. You just, you're, you're progressing forward. When you don't have kids, you're kind of, you know, where, where do I invest myself? How, where's my future? Where, where, how do I give myself away? Well, a eunuch is in that position. He's not, having, he's not having any kids. And so he's looking at bigger picture issues and asking bigger questions about what does the future hold? It's not just the generational thing. It's what's my place in this space and time and what's my purpose in life? So he concludes that somehow the God of Israel and how he did that, we do not know. In fact, there's so much we don't know about this text. We have to kind of go, well, God, are you still the kind of God that does things that are startling and surprising to us? And we see the result, not so much how the result got started or how it was coming about. So the Ethiopian eunuch is a special guy. What we do have, though, is his desire to know more about God. We, we find that he is already being drawn or attracted to God. We find in verse 27, he had come to worship. Now, what we find is in the Bible, the attractiveness of God is something that we can count on. So we'll find that in uh, uh, John 10, 27, we have the chapter 9 where the man is born blind and uh, let's just say the leadership of his community as they oust him from the synagogue for believing in Jesus would hardly be called good shepherds. And Jesus begins to contrast his ministry as a good shepherd with shepherds that were not so good. And he says, but here's the one thing about my role in ministry. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. They'll come to me. And he's really saying that don't worry if lots of people don't like Jesus. In fact, in Psalm 2, it says the nations rage and God laughs. He says, fine, rage against me. Here's the bottom line. In the end, you need to be among the group who will kiss the sun. This is Psalm 2, this old 1,500 years before Christ. It's talking about the, the son, the anointed one, who is going to be the son of God. And this is the one that God says, now the way you respond to him, that's the bottom line. And a lot of people in the culture today say, we voted against him, so he cannot exist, he does not exist, and we can ignore him. And the answer is, "Ah, not so much. The day will come. You can rage against him all you want, but some are being drawn to him even in this day in, in our community. They will hear his voice, hear about him, perhaps through you, and they will be drawn and want to know more, want to find out more, taste and see what the goodness is that you're enjoying so much. 
And that's the process of change getting started. So this man somehow had this awareness of God's goodness. We also find that it, it uh, is true that... Um, Pilate is talking to Jesus just before he crucifies Jesus, and Jesus is talking about his followers. And he says, you know, anyone who is of the truth will be drawn or come to me. We put that passage up there. I've come for this purpose, to witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth will come to me. Hear my voice. They'll respond to me. It doesn't mean huge numbers, but people who want the truth, guess who they'll be drawn to? The one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? Am I going to have to work really hard to make that work? No, that's God working on the inside. That's the attractiveness of God. And if someone in a world that is full of um, less than truth, a lot of times we're hearing things, we go, is that true? Uh, can that be true? Well, who is the ultimate reference point of what is true? The one who made everything. If we have truth as that which aligns with reality, <laughs> the one who created reality is the ultimate truth. And he is the one we would want to come to. So we find that this is what we've got going. And as Christians, we then, as those who have heard the voice and are, are drawn to the truth, are a little bit like this Philipp, uh, uh, Ethiopian eunuch. Now, he traveled from Ethiopia, a remarkable use of time and money. Now, here's a question. When we're, told to call, we're called to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, what are the symbols or signs that someone loves God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength? I'm going to suggest there's at least two measures, time and money. You want to know, if you want to know what someone really is about, what they love the most, ask to see their expense account or their visa printout and also the calendar. That will tell us what we love and worship. We can talk about God, but usually if that's just a sidebar, that's not loving him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. What we find about this Ethiopian eunuch is that he's coming after it with money and time. Catch that? That's a big punchline I want to make here. Somehow the attraction of God has caused him to overturn everything that's comfortable and to, to have a 4,200-mile trip because he has to go and then come back. And all the money and time and bumpiness on the road, I don't think it was a Cadillac he was driving, uh, it's going to be a rough and tumble trip. Why? Because he wants to know God. So that's who this Ethiopian eunuch is. We also find out that um, he's a proselyte. And what is, you know, we'll talk about proselytizing someone. That's a negative word these days. You don't proselytize. You let everyone stay where they are. Don't try and change their point of view. Well, you better change their point of view if they're going to get to heaven and if they don't know Jesus. But it's an invitation. It's not an imposition. So what's a proselyte? A proselyte is a non-Jew who is converted to Judaism through religious training and through circumcision. So there's a cost involved in becoming a proselyte. And we find that in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2, we had all these people who would come, and in that coming to the day of Pentecost, they were coming from all over the world. Included in that were a group of people, both Jews, down in verse 11, and proselytes. That is, people who have been drawn to God and are now in Jerusalem and are saying, tell us about this God. And now they're coming as the apostles are gathered together and they're discovering about Jesus as they're exploring the question of who is this God of Israel? And the report is out, the Messiah, 
the promised one, the anointed one. This one is here. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And so some of those people who are proselytes who have come to Jerusalem are now being gathered to that possibility. We also find that proselytes can be misled. In fact, in a passage in, uh, uh, we won't look at it in Matthew 23, Jesus, one of these, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He says, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, because you'll take the proselytes and you will make them twice the sons of hell that you are because you're going to mislead them into false and useless ways of worship and religion rather than meeting the living God in a way that's healthy and sound. And Jesus is speaking to those who are opposing him and eventually crucify him. So what we find is someone ready to take a risk and find out more about God. And here's this man coming from Ethiopia, and God wants to capture him. Now that he's come, he's been in Jerusalem, he's on his way back. We also find out that this man had a desire to seek God's words. He's recognizing that God is a communicator. And that's a key piece. God is a good communicator. And we say, well, then now why doesn't he speak to me when I ask him to communicate? I'm always asking him for this, that, and the other. Well, it could be we're not on the right wavelength. Love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You're probably going to have more of an experience like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, which is to say, everything I have is yours. Let me come and hear from you. Okay? So what we have here is this kind of unique investment, and he purchased a scroll of Isaiah. Well, I, I hate to tell you, but buying a vellum scroll, because it would have been a vellum scroll, just like we saw the sea, Dead Sea Scrolls. You can go down there. It's a big, long scroll. Uh, it's the Isaiah scroll, one of the things that they discovered that's on display there in the uh, Israel Museum. And that would have been expensive because there's a lot of animal skins to make that up. And it turns out his would have been in Greek because we can take the passage that's quoted here and recognize this is Greek. And Greek was the trade language of the day, Latin or Greek. The Latins, the Romans, loved the Greeks and loved the style of the Greeks. So they'd say, well, let's learn and work with the Greek language. And they often would use that, so Greek or Latin, and not Hebrew, not Aramaic. So that's why all of a sudden we discover that Philip is being brought along to help him out. So let's just assume he started, he bought his scroll, and he's starting his trip, and he's somewhere now near the boundary of Egypt and Gaza on a desert road, and Philip is brought down to chase him down and meet him there. It doesn't tell us how that all happened. He just said, where am I going? Doing what? And so he goes down, and he meets this guy in the chariot. He's already to chapter 53. Now, by the way, you can read through all of Isaiah in about three hours, four hours. You know, it just doesn't take that long to read through a book of the Bible. So he's just rolling his scroll and popping along. And as he's reading it, he gets to Isaiah 53, because that's the passage that is cited here. Uh, like a sheep that he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent. And this is a passage that we always take out and celebrate in uh, the Easter season on Good Friday. Uh, and that's what we read about the suffering servant who is going to die. And he will have his blood shed. And the imagery of the lamb whose blood is shed goes back to the Passover where they sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and on the lintel, 
We also find the imagery of the sacrifice of lambs every morning, a couple of them, each day of the year once they get the temple or the tabernacle established, that the shedding of blood is to be done on behalf of the people who have sinned. Let this animal stand in your place because you deserve to die for your sins. We'll let the animal cover for you. But as we find in Hebrew, the blood of bulls and goats doesn't really quite cut it. What you have to have is someone who is substantial enough to bear the weight of eternal life and eternal death. And so we also find that he's reading it aloud. Let me suggest to you, if you want to really get the Bible, read it aloud. Or perhaps get an audio Bible and then have your print Bible in front of you and by marking up the verses. Get engaged with it and you will find that it's a transformative experience. So he's reading it aloud, and that gives Philip the clue on where God has brought him to at that stage of the journey. And it's a remarkable passage because it's where we discover what John the Baptist said about Jesus when Jesus first is coming on the scene in John the Gospel, where he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, how does he do that? The same message that we have here. We find at the end of Luke, Jesus talks to Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus about his life and ministry, and he said it was necessary that the Messiah should suffer. And then he comes down and he meets with the disciples at the end of, uh, as they, Cleopas and the friend go rushing back to Jerusalem. We saw Jesus, and Jesus shows up in the room, another transportation moment. Uh, transport moment. He appears in the room and he starts talking about his presence in all of the Old Testament. So if you study the Old Testament, keep your eyes open for Jesus because that's what he's saying. They're about me. It's all about me. And ultimately he has this, it was necessary that the Messiah should suffer because that's caused everyone to stumble. How is it that Jesus, if he's the Messiah, would die? And the answer is, it's here in this passage. It was necessary for the sheep to die, the lamb to die, the blood to be shed. And then, guess what? Death couldn't hold him. And we find that's also true back in chapter 25 of Isaiah. It talks about the feast on this mountain, speaking no doubt of Jerusalem, and saying on this mountain there will be the great feast, and death will be swallowed. <whistles> death swallowed? I just was at a funeral this last week for my niece's husband who took his own life. He's a believer. It's just shattering. I hate death. I hate death. And it's shattering. But I know this, that Jesus swallowed death. And I know where I'll see Matt next. We'll be in heaven together. And death is hard. But just, guess what? Jesus died for our sake. And that's the reality that we have before us, that here's the, the, the profound reality that uh, he's reading about here. And Philip comes and said, what are you reading? He said, I don't understand this. this is Isaiah talking about himself. And he comes alongside, and the response to Isaiah 53 is where it's life-changing good news. And we find that he uses the language of the gospel. Uh, in verse uh, 35, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, this passage, he told him the good news about Jesus. Good news is what we use, evangelia, the gospel. This is what he began to share, and what we realize is by the time he gets to the point where they get baptized, he has to have taken them all away from Jesus being born 
having life, dying, and then what? Being raised from the dead. And with that, we have the story that Paul condenses in Romans when he says it's necessary for us to join Jesus in his death and then in his resurrection, we will be resurrected with him. When he swallowed death, he swallowed our sins. He took those sins upon himself. And taking those sins, he died because of what you did, you rascals, and me too. And for our sins, he died. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world for all who come to him. And then he's raised from the dead. He breaks the power of death. He swallows death because he's big enough as the Son of God. He's bigger than death. He's the, back in chapter 3, we saw he's the author of life, and death can't hold him in Acts. So all of this then is kind of reaching a crescendo, and they have this dramatic moment of coming down and recognizing that baptism is the appropriate display of faith in the living God. And in that display of faith, he recognizes that he is going to go down into death, represented by the immersion, and then come back again as a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, now with his death swallowed, with his need for salvation cared for. And he can now go back to Ethiopia, fully assured of his relationship with God. So he came to meet God, and as he's leaving Jerusalem, he meets God. And the rest of the story, we don't know. I wish I knew the rest of the story. But we can be assured that in Africa, there, there were, in fact, uh, real monasteries and other forms of Christian growth down in Ethiopia that were very clear. Archaeologists can find it in around 300, the year 300. Already Christianity is widespread in Ethiopia. So as God does his work of spreading the faith, this is a man who becomes a platform for that kind of transformation. His baptism was a bold step of full devotion to Jesus, and notice that as the eunuch uh, uh, saw Philip disappear, he went on his way rejoicing. Who is the one that's really doing this work? How about the Spirit of God? What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy. What does he do? He starts rejoicing, even though he loses his new friend. Peace, patience, long-suffering, all the qualities of God working from, change from the inside out. And this is his plan. This is his purpose. So, let me go back to Simeon Zoll and his theory of change. Will-powered, will-centered, knowledge-based, heart-based. Well, we find that Philip didn't call on him to work on any of his personal disciplines, so it wasn't will-based. Knowledge, well, that's not the focus. Philip only presented Jesus dying and being raised again from the dead, being the Son of God, and coming to to him to satisfy that deep appetite of meaning and purpose to come in the first place. I'm going to suggest that when someone starts to hear the shepherd's voice, they will travel a long ways to hear more about that. And if we're the ones who are like Philip, the ones who have that message, I hope we're quick to be able to say, oh, let me explain this to you. Let me share this with you. See, there's, there's the opportunity that we have as the church so this morning, we're not talking to those who are seekers. We're talking to those who have found and discovered that God is good and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Is it knowledge-based? Well, it's not a focus. Knowledge is part of all of this. But remember, the demons know more than we do about God, and they tremble, but they don't worship him. 
So raw knowledge is not the key to anything. It's relationship, it's worship, it's devotion, it's a heart change. Being transformed, Nick, Nicodemus, back in John 3, you need to be born again. You need to be born of the Spirit. So we can count on that as occurring here with the Ethiopian eunuch. So the heart, that's where God is really at work. He's the one who changes the heart. He's changed Philip's heart, and Philip was able to be an agent to invite this man to meet the heart of God through Jesus Christ and the message of the Messiah. What was behind the eunuch having a copy of the uh, Isaiah? Well, it was what he loved the most. He said, well, God has spoken. This is what God has said. Let me buy a copy of this. Who knows how many other scrolls he had squirreled away in his carriage. And so as he's reading this, this was life-giving stuff for him. He used his time, his money, and he recognized the truth that God was offering and Jesus as the ultimate reference point of truth. So God shared his love through Philip and the gospel. It's the communication of a faithful servant and the word of God that made the difference. So the answer, God shares his love through Philip and the gospel, and the result is one of the quickest and clearest life changes we see in the Bible. I mean, this is the only one that beats this is the woman at the well. You know, she's got her dramatically quick conversion. But here's another case where it's God doing the work of calling, wooing, stirring, drawing, inviting, and converting. And it's not our task to do this stuff. It's let the Spirit of God get loose in a soul and watch what will happen. And that's the great story we have here, the Ethiopian eunuch. So how is God's ministry of change working among us today? Well, people are hungry. But also we find discouragements. Matt, my, my nephew-in-law, my niece's husband, was a believer, but something broke. He was declared at the service this last week the most selfless man anyone had ever met. He just was gen. He's a pastor's kid. Just a sweetheart of a guy. And we, 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 short of heaven, we're never going to know what happened. But I can tell you this, that God is working change in all of that. Wendy's life, his wife, will never be the same. Four children, never be the same. All this stuff is just hard realities. But we have a God who changes from within. And I'm praying like crazy for their family. Okay, when death comes, it's painful. But we know that Jesus conquered death. And that's the one we turn to. So if you want to know answers, go to Jesus. Not for the answer to a particular occasion, but recognize that he's the author of life and the one who brings us out of death into life. So we can also be assured that he's working in the neighborhood. So let me tell a couple of stories here. I don't want to draw attention to myself. I just want to say I've had a chance to, as an old man now, discover um, some of these things. So a few years ago, for instance, the dentist said, Ron, we want to have an outreach Bible study for some of the people in our neighborhood who don't go to church, don't know Jesus, know about him, and are curious. Would you be able to offer an outreach Bible study? Oh, yeah. Do I want to eat steak? Do I want to, you know, pumpkin pie? I mean, yeah, I could do that. So we had that, and we just did it for four weeks, and if the people wanted to continue, we'd do another four weeks. We didn't offer prayer. We didn't do any of the churchy things. We just said, any questions are fair. You can ask any question you want. We're just going to go talk about Jesus in the Gospel of John. And we did that, 
And the, one of the couples just said, this is, this is incredible. We want to know more. Could you continue the Bible study down the line afterwards? <laughs> I says, no, no, no. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'm going to go off and do a doctorate in England. So I'll be gone for three years. So we got a friend, Ray Lubeck, to come in and lead that study for a little while. And then I came back and it continued even three years later when I came back from studies in England. Well, th- this couple approached me recently. They live in a place called Prune Hill. Kemas or something like that. Wah. Steve and Jean, they just live over here. And Ron, we've got some friends. They, you know that Bible study that you did for us years ago? Could you do another one of those Bible studies for us? Well, I could. So I came in there. I'm doing this Bible study. It's nice to meet you. Sandy, Hannah. Okay, nice to meet you. Uh, Sherry Fisher. Fisher Investments. Nice to meet you. And we went through the Gospel of John. And guess what? Sherry was down at Grace a few weeks later, hands up in the air praising God and enjoying her new life in Christ. They've now moved down to Texas, but guess what? God's at work. How about doing some outreach Bible studies? Do you think anyone in the neighborhood might be interested, high or low in rank? I bet you've got some neighbors who are hungry for Jesus Christ and would be drawn to his word so who are the people that are going to offer hospitality and put, put on some Bible studies for neighbors to meet Jesus, to hear the word of God, to be Phillips to their neighbors? I've got um, Greg and I did a Bible read-through. There's another option. We did it in four months. I'm finishing another four-month Bible read-through here at the end of this month, and I just did one before that. I do Bible read-throughs. Anyone that wants to read through the Bible with me in four months, any guys, and if any ladies want to do it, I will say guys with guys, gals with gals. It is life-changing to read through the whole Bible in three or four months. To say, I'm going to take this seriously. It's not going to be a marginal thing. I'm going to have this at the center. I don't care what it costs time-wise. I just don't care. I want to know God through Jesus Christ. Do you hear what this book, this text is about today? It's an invitation to a culture that needs change, and we get to be change agents. It's all about our time, our money, our focus, our investment. So, pretty good stuff. It's interesting. I find it's such an adventure. As I was up there, I went and saw two of my cousins who are not Christians. My, my, my mom's brother's daughter's. But boy, they are skilled and able. One was one of the chief figures for going out and planning Starbucks internationally. Oh, yeah, when I was in Delhi, it was really hard for this, and, you know, we were trying to get that. And the other one worked for an outfit called, have you ever heard of it, Boeing? And her husband was one of the chief operating officers. So I was saying, oh, yeah, i tell you about Boeing. You know, I'm on this airline. I'm going to London. I'm talking to this guy, and it turns out he's in charge of the International Space Station building it. And, and, and my cousin says, oh, we probably know who he is. What's his name? I said, never thought about that. So I went home, got the card, and popped the picture of the card. His name was Jerry. Uh, I got his business card. Oh, yeah, yeah, Doug, uh, her, her husband, my cousin's husband, worked with him as uh, they were working with the Russians about building the International Space Station. They worked together. Now, the point I'm making here is not so much to flash around, you know, who do I know and who do you? It's not that. It's just that God does fabric really well. And God does fabric in ways that will startle us. And so meeting Jerry Seamers, 
10 years ago and discovering that that's an open door for a non-believer who's married to my cousin, Doug, is one of those little stories that tells someone that God is at work in this world. And we get to be part of that. Just we have to have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open to the God who wants to change the world. Is that good enough? Okay, well, I, I could tell some more stories, but we'll quit there.